0: everyone and welcome to the News Agent Podcast. I'm Susie Lysett, Good Lord Senior Content Executive, and this episode is a recording of part two of our Renters' Reform Bill webinar series. David Smith, partner at JMW Solicitors, joined this session to share his expertise on the abolition of Section 21, as well as the strengthened grounds for Section 8 and what this all means for the letting sector. Now, this webinar series is CPD accredited, so if you want to build up your CPD credits, I'll add the link in the show notes so you can head there to watch the on-demand recording. But for those of you that prefer to get your legislation updates on the go, let's crack on with the podcast. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's rent uh, reform Bill series. Um, I'm, uh, it's a pleasure to be joined today by David Smith. Um, David's going to join us shortly. Um, today, we're going to be discussing the end of Section 21, Um Quite a um, well-voiced issue um, coming down the tracks um, as per the Renters Reform Bill and something that um, I'm sure as agents you've been thinking a lot about. And hopefully today uh, we can guide you through the proposed changes and talk a bit more about the effect of those changes um, and understand exactly um, what is potentially happening um, in this area of the sector. Um, For those who are joining today who don't know um, who Goodlord are, um, we are a pre-tenancy platform that expedites um, the entire pre-tenancy process, allowing you to be more efficient and focus on things like business generation and revenue generation. Um, If you're not aware or haven't seen what our platform can do for you, then please do jump on our website um, and indeed you can book a demo uh, and see exactly how our platform can help your business. Um, today really isn't about good lord as most of our webinars actually are today is about understanding um, exactly um, what the end of section 21 spells for the industry for you as letting agents for your landlords and indeed for your tenants um, so again I'm pleased to be uh, joined by Mr David Smith um, good morning David morning good morning um, I'm not sure are you able to put
1: your camera I think, on I think someone has to turn me on I've been stopped
0: <laughs> oh no Sarah can we have I'm, I'm fortified over. by tea
1: i need someone there we go there's my video there we go i'm fully fortified with my cup of tea ready to answer as many questions as possible about um, about all of this
0: um again thank you for joining us this morning for those who don't know who david smith is would you like to just uh, let us know a bit more about yourself and 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 how you how you act within the industry
1: this is always my least favorite part of any webinar (laughs) um (laughs) Wow, I'm, I'm a partner in a law firm in, in London called JMW. It's um, actually a Manchester law firm, but I work in the London office. Um, I have always specialised in residential landlord and tenant law, um, about which I've written and spoken a fair bit and written the odd book here and there, which some of you may have been unlucky enough to, to read or see before. Um, apparently, I know stuff. Uh, other people might just say I'm a flagrant self-publicist. You take the pick.
0: <laughs> and and not light on on, on opinion i think is fair to say david um, i, think I have, found, have
1: have been noted for being blunt about what i think about stuff yes
0: i'm not well, always I, I, the
1: government's favorite person
0: well, indeed, I think it's fair to say the industry um, is, is grateful for, for people that hold um, well backed opinion, especially in a time of such change. And I know that you do a lot behind the scenes as well to sort of lobby and, and and really understand and challenge change where sometimes it doesn't make the most sense. And that's indeed what today is about. We're going to unpick, I suppose, the elements of the change that do make sense um, and try and give some perspective on that, but also maybe um, expose uh, through David's insights, some of the stuff that maybe doesn't make as much sense. Um, and when it comes to the the, the end the, the end of section twenty one, um, this is an issue that has got a lot of airtime. And I think we've noted on these series of webinars before, um, maybe unjustly. Um, you, you know, th- with any kind of change, with any kind of um, uh, movement, um, there's often a lot of media attention, and with that comes a bit of scaremongering. So we're going to hopefully unpick the bits we should be concerned about. We should focus on today against the bits that actually, hey, um, it's not real change here. So um, in terms of an agenda, we're going to go through a couple of things today. We're going to discuss indeed at the end of section 21, uh, remind ourselves of where we started to where we're going and talk about the effect uh, of those changes on you as letting agents um, and landlords. Um, we're going to talk about the changes to section 8 as well um, and what section 8 is going to be utilised for moving forwards. Um, in a way that maybe um, it it isn't at the moment, albeit it could be. Um, And like I said, the Q&A is on throughout. So any questions you have for either David or or I, uh, anything to do with the changes, the industry, um, good Lord, whatever it may be, we're here to answer those questions. Um, So let's get into it, David. Um, As I say, this is a subject um, that frankly has got, I think, the most airtime out of any of the reform changes and something that agents and landlords have vocalised quite loudly that they're extremely worried about. But I think it's important... To remind ourselves of what the original purpose of Section 21 was, so could you sort of take us through that, maybe take us back in time?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think I should be open right now, and so I've always been of the view that, that I don't think Section 21 is the all and end all of life, um, and 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 it's 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 quite a unique thing in many ways to to the to the England and Wales PRS and the Scottish PRS until more recently, um, and it's not something you find elsewhere, but. Essentially, the original purpose of Section 21 was so that assured shorthold tenancies could be for fixed terms. And, and at the end of those fixed terms, um, uh, landlords would be able to recover possession using Section 21 at the end of the agreed period. I mean, I think we should recognise that the Housing Act 88 was never intended to be the way it was. The government intended that the vast majority of tenants would be on fully assured tenancies that were periodic all the time. Um, but were lifetime tenancies, um, and that were probably held by institutional investors. The AST was considered to be a a sort of small-scale secondary thing um, that the vast majority of people would not be in. And and, and then for one reason or other, and there are disputed reasons for all of this, but... Things got rather got away from them. And uh, the reality is that, that that is not what happened. And the sector is looks totally different from the government's original plan with a very large number of, of small investors. I mean, we should, you should all, all recognise, I think, that essentially in 1988, letting agents just didn't exist. Mm. Um, and there certainly were nowhere near as many as there are now. If we try assume the technology existed and we had this webinar in 1988, there'd be like five people on it. <laughs> um, and that would be like half the sector, you know. So the idea that uh, that, that that all of this uh, would um, would would be the way it is was was simply not planned. Now the difficulty, of course, is that is that sector one, especially in a normally functioning market where you've got reasonable levels of supply meeting demand, it probably wouldn't matter that much. But the reality is, is as we're all aware, for again a wide range of disputed reasons, which I don't think we need to trouble ourselves with right now. Um, supply and demand are not matching terribly well in the sector. There's a lot more demand than there is available supply, Um, uh, particularly, of course, in the Southeast, because obviously it gets a bit more subtle about that supply and demand in in, in different parts of the the sector. Uh, And that's led to, I think, what we could reasonably describe as a certain amount of misuse of Section 21. So Mm -hmm. Section 21, of course, has ended up being used to some extent as a negotiation with guns to people's heads. So, for example higher rent on a renewal or service section 21 and get someone else. It's been misused by some landlords to remove people who've complained about repairs. And then I think we should be honest. And I do that. I have to very clear. This happens in lots of my cases as well. You get the sort of gray area section 21 where the tenants in rent arrears, they're quite severe. Tenants also complaining about disrepair. You don't think much of it. Uh, and, you're, and, our, and our legal view is what probably isn't really disrepair actually, but rather than go through the Section Eight process and have that discussion, we simply say we'll serve a Section Twenty One and, and, and evict just on the Section and, and Twenty One, and that discussion goes away. And while that is lawful, it isn't really what Section Twenty One was intended for. And I sort of call that grey area Section Twenty One, in which you have a justification for evicting somebody, but but uh, where your the, the justification might. To be considered by the courts if you'd use the section 8 process use the section 21 process it's not considered and therefore there's no opportunity for the tenant to respond to some of it and, so, and that, so yeah. it's, it's, it, it, the width of the thing has, has it exploded beyond the real intention that, that existed initially
0: and, and that that width that that um that gray area is something we see within our business um from a rent protection sure. perspective um it but does it not suggest that the other mechanisms available actually aren't as robust um, in practice as they could be and therefore section 21 is the is the um you know covers all process that essentially has been allowed to be be misused in your terms moving forward
1: sure so there are other i mean there are other structural reasons for example other people use section 21 simply because they can use accelerated possession proceedings um yeah. and they do that largely because they can do it themselves and, and cut out um stinky expensive solicitors like myself um and it cuts us out of the loop which is perfectly fair enough why should why, why should we why should we get get um, get a monopoly on on work by the legal system i mean uh, so so i can understand why people do that but but at the same time um it, judges are not always as robust as they could be on discretionary grounds for section eight um, i think particularly most notably antisocial behavior is a problem and if you have to prove stuff there's always a risk that you won't be able to prove stuff um and so um, you, you get this position where where where, um, where people might try and go to court for antisocial behaviour, and, and it takes ages because you have multiple hearings because because they, it, it, the judge isn't convinced, and and so in some cases I think judges have lacked robustness about about very real problems that that landlords are having. Um, and that's, that's been allowed to propagate, and, and then the senior, I mean, and there's not enough stuff. This, this stuff is appealed. There's no real incentive to appeal because what tends to happen, of course, is where you might have appealed and got senior court to deal with it. You're like, oh sod it, let's just serve a section 21 and we'll yeah. resolve it that way. Let's not go there. So, um, so so there's a sort of both sides feed feed off each other in, in a sense to to not resolve the legal questions, um. So that's a problem as well. And then of course the court system is just achingly slow and, and frankly not improving um due to again systemic underfunding over an extended period. And and um I could go on for ages about the the inappropriateness of not funding your justice system in a functioning democracy. I, I probably shouldn't.
0: Well, we, we've got we've got that as a bullet point for the, the the last slide, just in case it does go on for ages, so we can credit sure. But I think it's worth noting. I think it's an important point that when you're making change um, and you're layering change on top of what is a um, arguably broken process and system that is underinvested, you know the question is whether that change is actually going to be effective in the in, in a way that in theory um, they're setting out to do. Which again, we're going to cover cover shortly. But you talk um, there in terms of you know where section twenty one has come from, where the market was, to where the market is now. Um, renting property has become more of a staple um, diet of um, being a citizen of this country. And I think arguably it's not going away. Um, It's harder probably to buy a house, especially given the cost of living crisis now, than it's going to be to rent a property, albeit supply and demand issues make that even tougher. Um, And there's different pressures there. Um, The the point in terms of how Section 21 is utilised now, um, we talk about that grey area, talk about misuse. Um, There has been you know, do you think Section 21 has been unfairly labelled? Because if, if you read anything in the in the mainstream media, I'm not trying, trying to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, but it's often labelled as a no-fault eviction. And I, I struggle to accept that that is a uh, a, a, way, a well-placed common phrase because I'm not convinced landlords do wake up on a Saturday morning, have their breakfast and think, what should we do today? I think we'll we'll have a game of tennis, we'll go to some bridge, and then we'll evict our tenants. That's not really quite how it works. But that speaks to your point earlier about the 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 broadness of section 21 being a catch-all really i suppose and do you think it's then therefore been unfairly labelled and targeted as part of this reform
1: i mean part of the problem here undoubtedly is that is that the media has has ended up painting landlords as all basically scumbags um and tenant groups obviously i mean and, and you know I, I, you can blame them but at the end of the day they've got a group of people to represent that's their job and hard they're hardly going to sit there if they want reform of the system saying, God, most landlords are great, are oh, they? They're going to sit there and highlight the bad cases. And the difficulty, um, and I say this having obviously worked in public affairs for landlords quite a long time for quite a long time, is is you don't get is you don't get people writing stories in the press saying, oh yes, I had a great time with my landlord, because it's just a rather dull story, frankly. Um, it's a far better story to write in the press to say you know, my landlord set fire to my teddy bear while there was water pouring through my ceiling. It's, it's, it's always <laughs> going to be a better story. And and so the media tends to um, over-egg stories. And then I think part of the problem here as well, of course, is, that is is politics is done by social media now. The reality is that the vast majority of... of um, of MPs and politicians get far too much of their news from social media, have a pretty unsophisticated understanding of of, of the of the laws that they deal with, and 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 tend to jump to knee-jerk reaction. And, and the nature of social media and politics again is not something I should. You know, there's plenty of other people talking about. I'm not going to harp on about, but it does tend to relatively crowd-pleasing knee-jerk stuff that. Um, that 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 you can you can tweet i mean i the ideal the ideal government po- policy these days is hundred and forty characters and that yeah. you can that you can get get out there on twitter so so it, it's 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 difficult um to have more nuanced conversations at the moment and that that certainly doesn't help matters and the and the problem is of course that that Some landlords undoubtedly do abuse Section 21, which leads you to the conclusion that all landlords abuse Section 21. And there is a tendency in Parliament at the moment um, to legislate for the margins. So in general terms, it's not good law to write law for very exceptional boundary cases. You tend to write law for the majority of stuff. Um, and then, obviously, you deal with the, you deal with the serious exceptions like killing people. You obviously write law to say no, you can't do that, even though a lot don't do it. Um, but in general terms, in general, in regulatory law, it's not generally a good idea to write law that that only deals with very small numbers of boundary cases. You need to try. You want to keep the majority of people on the straight and narrow, and then and then probably use effective, active enforcement against a small minority. But we've tended towards the situation of of trying to write cases to the minority. And, and you can see yeah. that with Section 21. I, I mean, we've lumped more and more and more obligations on your use of Section 1, which lead it to becoming traps for the unwary, you know, whether or not you have to serve your gas safety certificates and your EPCs and all of these additional documents. Um, and that's ended up, of course, in, in a number of cases which I've been involved in 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 you know, complex nonsense before the appellate courts of like Tricaron and Roundsfield, where a gas safety certificate existed but hadn't been given to the tenant. Um, Northwood Solihull, where you've got um uh the uh, tenancy deposit information has been signed but but the but not in quite the right way, and the wrong box was ticked on a Section Eight notice. So you tend to get these you know it, it leads to a situation where you get fairly purposeless appeals running up to um, the top tier of the courts mm. um, about really minor stuff because because the the system has has become too focused on on trivial detail. I mean is it really that important for the service of a section 21 whether you signed the tenancy deposit protection certificate if the tenant's deposit was protected and they had the necessary information? Do you really need to sign to confirm that it was true? Is that important? But apparently it is important, but but only because the law says it is.
0: And and we've got a few questions coming in around um study uh, complexities. Um and, and actually um somebody who's not left their name, but good morning to you. They say the section twenty one section twenty-one of form six a is very simple and easy to complete. Section eight is more complicated with the need to give a full explanation of why each ground is being relied on. Do you expect David this to be simplified to allow landlords and agents to serve notice without the need to instruct a solicitor? I think
1: landlords can serve a section. I mean, the law is already much simpler than people think. I mean, I know the law says you have to give a full explanation why the ground has been relied on, but the case law is pretty clear that that that, that uh, explanation can be pretty, pretty actually quite low brow. For example, in uh, ground eight, it's perfectly acceptable to say the rent arrears exceed X, which is more than two months' rent. That's an acceptable form of words. So mm-hmm. the only time you have to give a detailed explanation really is in relation to ground fourteen. When you're required really to itemise all of the um, um, all of the the grounds possession, but I mean the reality is I I don't see any particular problem with people serving section eight notices, but I think the real problem here is that the market needs to move on um, because section twenty one is so heavily used, it's not led to much innovation. I think there's there's much more scope available. I'm working with a number of people at more, uh, on more technological solutions. Um, that would allow agents to access tools to serve more effective Section 8, notices, and that so far there's been a low level of market pressure. But I mean, the other problem is that because of the, the casual attitude towards Section 21, people think it's like a really trivial job, and, and so the market's driven down the price to silly levels. And, and the same thing can be said about conveyancing. These are actually quite complex issues involving transfers of property. Um, if you want to serve a, notice, serve a break notice on a commercial property, you can bet your bottom dollar you'll be paying paying a great deal of money while someone makes sure it's absolutely right. Mm. Um, we've trivialized uh, the notice service process. Now, in part, we've trivialized it because structurally, a lot of tenants don't leave because the council tells them not to. And, and so, so people see it as the the necessary gateway to do what they actually need to do, which is go to court um so we need to try and try and i mean it, it, ideally there should be some structural alteration and that's not legislative stuff really it's about guidance to councils being different it's about um different approaches to the service of notices and, and what that means um and to be fair the fairer renting white paper talks about that but then so numerous other white papers and numerous other government documents we'll have to see if that, that has an effect on the ground but notices probably should be more serious and less trivial than they are currently are
0: and, and on the point of, i'm going to try and get through some of the questions what a few a sort of flowy come in before we go on to the next point david so i'm going to, I'm going to try and ti- tenuously try these into the point you're making if it doesn't make sense then bear with me uh but on the point of serving sections uh we have somebody else who have not left their name but good morning um, in order to serve a section 21 and 8 currently if the property has an up-to-date gas safety certificate but these haven't been sent to the tenants each year apart from the start of the tenancy can a notice be served? They ask
1: on a section 21 if you if you if the tenant got the original one and you've got them but you haven't sent them if you send them the most recent one you could serve a section 21 notice yes um section 8 notice it's not a problem I, mean, I think I should probably say um, let's start talking a little bit about about the fair renting white paper one of the things the government is saying is that is that um, under the reforms they're proposing they will do away with these vast majority of these these technical requirements and the only thing they'll retaining is um is having dealt with the deposit and then not necessarily for every grant for possession. Either. So that the, the general tenor of the government is to try and remove some of these, these odd little restrictions and obviously massively cut the amount of money I earn by um stopping me going to court of appeal about these, about these trivial appeals all the time. Yeah, um,
0: <laughs> And, 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 and moving on, Matthew says, um, hi, comma. I fear, Matthew, there may have be been more to your question than hi, but we both say hi back. Good morning, Matthew. Um, if you do want to post the question, please do have another go. Um, and moving on to, to actually what the reform is going to do, um, and, and using this as, as, as a conduit to discuss that, Demi asks, um, we have many landlords who serve Section 21 due to the tenant being unpleasant, um, but it's not enough there to evict with antisocial behaviour. Do you think the new laws will restrict this? Well, we'll come on to antisocial behaviour shortly. Um, Um, But let's talk about what the proposed changes are, because part of that doesn't include antisocial behaviour. So what is the reform, Bill David, actually suggesting is going to essentially replace um, the function of Section 21?
1: So I I think let's talk about Section 21 first, and we'll come on to SB when we talk about Section 8. But but, I mean, the short answer to Demi's question is, damn, damn, yeah, we'll absolutely restrict this, because the entire objective of of the, the white paper is to get rid of Section 21 altogether. Now, actually, it's much more than that. And this is quite important. What the government is in fact proposing to do is to get rid of assured shorthold tenancies and to get rid of fixed term tenancies, which is actually a replication of something that's just happened in Scotland. So um, the government has made a massive jump and effectively adopted an SNP policy, which is kind of surprising. Um, But but we're not just getting rid of Section 21. We are removing the concept of the fixed term tenancy altogether. So you will not be able to grant a tenant a 12, 12 month tenancy or an 18 month tenancy or a six month tenancy you will grant them a tenancy for an indeterminate period. The tenant will be able to leave with two months notice to you. You will not be able to ask the tenant to leave unless you can make out one of the grounds in revised Section 8. So it's, it's, it's actually much more than just getting rid of Section 21.
0: And yeah. I think that's,
1: that's one of the things that people haven't fully got their heads around yet. And, and, and in fact, as I've already indicated, I don't think that getting rid of Section 21 is that big a deal necessarily. Provided you have appropriate grounds for possession in Section 8 to allow you to do the same things that you needed to do under Section 21, but shorn of the, of, of the abuse element of it. Um, where I am much more concerned is where you get rid of fixed-term tenancies, because I think that has knock-on effects, which are extremely problematic in specific sectors. And the, and the most obvious example, but it's not the only one, is the student sector.
0: Indeed, and actually, Simon, uh, one of our uh, viewers today asked questions around that in terms of, from a student um, letting perspective, um, obviously, given they, they tend to be fixed term uh, and for 12-month contract, uh, really, how can a landlord ensure that they get 12 months' worth of rent? Um, uh, how can a landlord commit to the next year when Senate Section 22 doesn't exist? There's clearly some, some some fear around the position student mm-hmm. landlords are in in context of the change.
1: Yeah, but I think we should bear in mind this will really disadvantage students as well because the reality is that students will have to give two months' notice. They're not always the most organised of people. If they don't give two months' notice, then the landlord can hold them to their notice. So I think many students will find themselves quite... And and what's even worse in student landlord property is if you're um, a purpose-built student property block that's being operated by by Unite or one of these big guys and you're licensed uh, with the Unipol code, you can have a fixed-term tenancy which you can enforce, but if you're everybody else in the student sector, and let's, let's be clear here, that is the majority of the student Mm. sector, small private landlords house most students in the country, particularly outside the Southeast. Um, and, and, you know, the stats show that the the, the big blocks are housing around 20 to 30% in, in some of the big northern, Northern sort of student towns like Leeds and York and Manchester and so on. Um, then, um, then you can't have a fixed term tenancy. So students will will probably have come from a hall in their first year, not appreciating that. they, well, they didn't have to give notice. Will move into a private sector property, not appreciating they do have to give two months' notice. And landlords now feeling the pressure of these situations are much more likely to say, "Well, I'm sorry, but normally I might have not worried about it. But in the new regime, I am holding you to your notice, and I expect you to give me two months' notice, and you haven't." And you can't leave. Or if you are going to leave, you're going to have to pay me more money. Um, and then as against that, of course, what will happen is students will tend to leave early um, uh, as soon as their studies are over, which will mean, of course, that landlords potentially face council tax bills for a month or two between students in the void periods, or have, have void periods and much more. Um, the government hasn't even remotely thought about situations where there's a group of students and one of them wants to leave. Because in a periodic tenancy, one student can give notice for all of them. In a fixed-term tenancy, that can't happen. Mm. So the government is, hasn't even addressed this problem in their white paper and obviously doesn't even recognise its existence. Um, so, so there's that problem as well. Um, and then um, you, you also have the obvious example of, of Lords tend to sign tenancies quite early, you know, often in January time, for students to move in in July time. And they'll often sign and execute the tenancy in full because people want commitment on both sides. The students want certainty. The landlord wants certainty. Um, And and now they're going to have to say, well, I'm not so sure my current students will move out. So what will they actually do? They will sign a tenancy with with these tenants. They will say it's subject to contract. They will not execute it. Um, And then they will wait and see if their current students move out. And you will have an awful lot of students, I think, having their landlord turn to them and say, well, I know you signed the contract with me, but it was subject to contract. It hasn't been executed. It's not binding on me. My current students haven't left. So unfortunately you can't move in. Um, And you now have to find yourself accommodation, you know, a month before your studies start when there's basically nothing. So sorry, but it's not my fault. And, And I think the problem here is, is the reason this happens the NUS has a policy position that students shouldn't get a worse deal than other tenants. And I get that. I understand their point. But they're not really playing then for students. They're basically playing for the relatively small number of mature students with families who do tend to make up the leadership of the NUS, unsurprisingly. Um, But 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 the reality is that's not most students. And the NUS is, is, is advocating for a relatively small group of students while failing to appreciate the enormous damage they're going to do to the majority.
0: And, and we talk about students there, but HMOs, is there any other change that would affect them or, or not affect them in the same way students seem to be uh, marginalized from a process perspective?
1: Well, I mean, with HMOs, I mean, again, I think landlords are going to find themselves moving much more to roomlets because if you've got an HMO with a group of occupiers and it's a periodic tendency all the time, one occupier will give notice that will be effective on. Every you get yourself in a complex position. I think you're going to find that landlords will move more and more and more towards room Um, which means, of course, that that individuals don't have a choice about who they live with because they don't come as a settled group. They just get somebody imposed on them. Um, and I think that the government's failing to appreciate, and again, we'll come back to this, the enormous amount of damage that low-level antisocial behaviour by one occupier can do in an HMO as regards the other people in it. I mean, and, and there are other changes that we're not really talking about today like pets and so on and and things like that and i i just don't really see how how forcing landlords to accept pets in hmos for example is ever going to work
0: no um i'm still waiting for a list of what a pet is we had this we had this conversation on another uh webinar well, uh, and one one of the anytime
1: soon <laughs> um
0: uh that last question actually was from claire sorry claire i forgot to note you good morning claire um we've got a couple of questions coming in um around the fact that. With this reform, this essentially removes the uh, fixed-term aspect um, and the reliance on the AST. Will, will there be a new contract coming into place that agents and landlords will be utilising in light of the change?
1: Um, well, assured and assured short shorthold tenancies are very similar in practice. Um, I mean, undoubtedly there will be some some marginal change to agreements. The white paper does hint at, and it says the government will at some stage introduce an obligation to have written... Tenancies in the future. Now, I don't know whether that means in the future when they're doing all this existing stuff with Section 21 or in the future future at some other time. But it actually seems to me that this is a terrible mistake. And I think the government should simply impose the same requirement you find in Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland, the Channel Islands, and almost every other European country, um, that landlords should just be required to provide a written agreement. I don't, I don't think that harms the vast majority of good landlords. I can't see many letters agents complaining about it um, and it would seem to be a positive thing for tenants to have a clear written agreement and and I, I don't understand why the government just wouldn't do that it would it would solve a lot of problems i mean obviously there would be teething problems and clearly in wales the new written agreements are causing a lot of problems because they are wordy if i if i say so he says euphemistically by which i mean 40 plus pages of words um and you would have to be careful about that but i see no particularly good reason why we shouldn't just mandate written agreements in, in england actually and just say this is broadly what's going to be in it but and, and then you can tinker with the edges but yeah sure people will have to make some changes to their tenancy agreements undoubtedly
0: and and there's a few comments in um one from mike and and others around the fact that this 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 move away from fixed term results in landlords lexing the market um uh, I, I, we covered this in, in 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 previous webinars and i think the the point to make i suppose around landlord exit is landlord exiting and property exiting are two different things um in my view um i, I don't <laughs> think every landlord that exits takes their property with them away from the market now i my, my personal opinion on this david is that we see more consolidation um and we're getting into the, into into the world of crystal ball here but given the amount of questions we've had on it um, what's your view on on landlord on this, this reform? Essentially, driving landlords out the market. I feel like there's a there's a bias towards that, and it, it frankly for me may be a little lazy in the sense that the, the properties themselves may well remain in the in the industry uh, as a so, sort of
1: combination. Tenant groups always go on about this, and they and they get very excitable when when people like me say landlords will leave the market, and they say, "Well, the property won't be destroyed, so either another landlord will buy it, so fine." Or it will be um, uh, bought by someone who was a tenant and therefore they will be removed. But, I mean, clearly this is garbage. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, because if that were true, we currently have landlords exiting the market and demand is higher than it has ever been.
0: Mm.
1: So if it were true that the properties weren't leaving or that there was no problem, then demand would be dropping as people bought the houses. So the problem here is not that landlords will or won't leave the market. The problem is simply that there is an insufficient supply of properties for the demand in specific areas of the country. And you can't move properties around. They're not like other commodities. If, if I have lots of apples in London and lots of people don't want them, but they want them in Newcastle, I ship apples to Newcastle. That's not a problem. Um, you don't ship properties up the road. They are where they are. So, so the first point is is supply and demand is not is not classical Adam Smith economics in property because you can't move it around. It, it is where it is, and people don't. And demand is not is not is not is not fungible. It's fixed in specific locations, or to use another, or to use another classic property phrase, location, location, location. Um, other TV programs do exist, um, so. Um, so, so uh, uh, there's a problem there. But, but the other problem is that if landlords sell and a new landlord buys the property, the first thing that a new landlord does is refurbish the property. So, it's off the market for several months. So, in fact, at least on a pre basis, you do actually reduce supply. The second point is that a new landlord will have a different economic strategy and will probably run rents up to near the market rate when they put their new, newly refurbished property back onto the market. So, rents tend to rise. Across the board, which is a problem. Um, the third point is: if you sell to somebody who was a tenant, the reality is that tenants who are buying property probably don't want to buy properties in the area they have rented. In most, because they in fact don't. Most studies show tenants don't want to buy in the area they currently rent in. Um, they probably don't want to buy the type of property they were renting. They're probably looking for something smaller, and they definitely don't want to buy a property to share with other people. So any tenant who's buying, who's currently sharing, is going to be buying up a property that isn't actually available on the tenant sector, or at least not in their market of the tenant sector, and actually is going to end up having increasing the amount of demand because they will have left and there'll be more people looking for shared property. So so I, I think the problem when people say the property doesn't leave the sector, I agree with that statement. Uh, or, or the property doesn't disappear it, it may leave the sector it may not but it becomes unavailable to the sector and it potentially becomes unavailable to the same segment of the sector for a period of time
0: in this in this you know agreed in the same way and especially the rental value piece i think is it's important to note you know that that change is naturally going to increase the rent uh for a number sure. of different reasons um and you talked about yeah. some sort of knee-jerk reactions we've seen um, somewhat a knee reaction, um, north of the border only this week in terms of freezing rents, which we've had one, one or two questions on um, uh, essentially around that. The, the, um,
1: the last point I would throw in there that people forget about is that, um, is that you've got to bear in mind that, um, that, that uh, arguing about whether or not properties should be rented uh, or sold or available for holidays and second homes actually misses the point that we just don't have enough properties. Yeah. And so the problem here is not that, that you're um, driving landlords out sector, it's you're driving investment out of the property sector as a whole. And the difficulty at the moment is we spend far too much time arguing about what type of properties to build, whether they should be socially rented, market rate or whatever. And... It's quite a strong group of people that led, and I agree with these people, led by what they tend to call the YIMBYs, the Yes In My Backyard groups, who basically take the view that we should just build property. It doesn't matter that much what it is. We are so short of property. You shouldn't care. You just need more supply.
0: Full stop. Mm. And, and with that in mind, then, um, sort of, to, 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 to bring this back into the letting agent um, space, um, what do you think the effect of this change is going to be on agents themselves? Uh, maybe their day to day, how they act, but also what their, their outlook looks like in the next sort of 18 to 24 months?
1: Well, uh, at the moment, agents are very focused on fixed term tenancies and doing renewals because it certifies their fees Agents need to adopt a more sophisticated understanding of the OFTV Foxton's cases and, the under, and their understanding about fees. Um, it will put agents in very difficult situations on let-only arrangements because they will, be, they will find it harder to obtain fees going forward. Um, so I think there will be a further drive towards rent, collect and management situations. Um or a, a further drive away from commission, which I think is is increasingly anachron anachronism in the let sector anyway. It's not. It's it, it doesn't do what people think it do, what people say it does. It it's actually mostly a a, a driver of negative behavior in my opinion. Um, I don't doubt for a minute some will immediately pop up and tell me I'm wrong, <laughs> and you're free and you're free to disagree with me on this. But I uh, most of the time I see commissioners driver of negative behaviors. Um, and I think it's also laughable to suggest to a landlord that uh, getting him another fifty quid in rent when, when for the for the agent, particularly the the by the time you've gone through the business and got to the actual individual, they're getting maybe fifty p. You know, is that really any kind of driver to anybody? Of course, it's not. It's um, you know, driver for most agents is to do deals. They're not actually that. Often the commission percentage is less important than the fact they're getting paid. So I think commission often drives negative behaviours, um, and then you, you've, you've got you know just the the general effect of, of more difficult management situations. I think if, if evictions are going to be more complicated, then agents are going to have to have much more effective management, much more effective record keeping, um, and be much more attuned and have much greater understanding of how the process works and how they're going to fit into it, which is inevitably back to training, education, and standards. And, and the difficulty remains for agents in this area that there are some really great agents out there. Um, I'm assuming that, that, that there are 495 of them signed into this because the problem is that there are lots of really bad agents out there who don't care, aren't interested. Um, and And the difficulty remains, of course, that the sector has a terrible problem retaining people. And, and
0: and if you don't retain people and you have turnover you don't get good agents and if this is see my view on this is if this is difficult for agents then goodness me it's difficult for landlords and if <laughs> agents you know i'd like to think and i, I believe actually my interactions with agents w- w- would suggest this that they are well ahead of the pace of landlords in understanding what the changes are um you know they they have a um appetite to understand how they can utilize that change and really perform and deliver great customer service into their landlords so for me, there is a value add here that if you are indeed investing in education and the training, and you are ahead of these changes, there is an ability to really educate and justify the fee away from any commission aspect, but actually justify why you're why you're there and justify the support and help you can give because of the 170 or whatever it may be points of legislation that agents and landlords have to follow. You know, there's a professional outfit there that can manage that. Um, but I suppose your point there, David, is that along with all those people that can manage that, there's a whole group that don't manage that very well and therefore devalue the perspective and uh, of letting agents to other landlords, maybe. Um, well, yeah, but, a- I mean,
1: agents are, are very poor at selling selling the sizzle, as in explaining what it is they actually provide as value-add, because mm. the vast majority of landlords think their agents provide poor service. and you know the reality is if you go and look at the ombudsman decisions agents are very bad at communication that is the the, the largest single complaint about agents is bad communication um and a lot of agents are guilty of it and i i, I should point out that lawyers also are guilty of the largest single area of complaint about lawyers is bad communication so don't think i'm i'm i'm, I'm you know uh, being hypocritical about it i agree it's a problem for my sector as well uh, and probably for me just as much as anybody else um uh, so um, agents are not terribly good at explaining to to landlords what it is that they provide. Lots of landlords basically think they could do it themselves if they could be asked. Um, and, and the difficulty is that the agents are not great at explaining that additional stuff. And agents have access to so much material that they could use and repurpose and provide to landlords in terms of guidance and guides and, mm. you know... You know, just value add stuff. And they they don't do that. And I think that this kind of change may force agents really to start really thinking about that stuff because you will not be able to pile it high and sell it cheap and just turn stuff over in the same way, no. way in my-
0: and that's been a long time coming, frankly. The race to the boss on fees, the devaluing of the agency services is, you know, is, sure. I, I fear a fair breaking point in terms of the massive agents, the small amount of landlords available and new property available coming to the market. Something has to change there. And the cream, I think, or I hope will rise to the top. Um, before we move on to Section 8, I appreciate we spent a bit of time on Section 21, um, but we have got some breaking news, David. Um, I think in the time that we've been um, online, um, Eddie Hughes has resigned um yeah. eddie hughes being the not um, a surprise the IC, major
1: Boris supporter
0: <laughs> major Boris supporter um stuck in there actually longer than most thought he would actually given the change in government um but that's i think important because eddie hughes was one of the main driving forces if not the main driving force behind some of this reform um we were going to talk in the section 8 piece around the change of government it feels timely to do that given the 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 number of questions or notes coming in around eddie hughes leaving what's your initial take on that
1: so so i expected Eddie. Hughes to resign. He was an outspoken supporter of Boris. Um, as the Cabinet started to shape up after over the last 24 hours or so, it was patently obvious that Liz Truss was, was putting in her loyalists. And while there are still some Boris guys in there, they, they are not the majorly loyal Boris people. Um, Eddie Hughes was always likely to find himself returning to the back benches. Um, there was a good profile in Inside Housing last night, which which I put on my LinkedIn because I thought it was very good this morning, um, of Simon Clark, the new head of of DLUHC, the new Secretary of State for for the department. It is notable that he has mainly been a house building guy. He has an interest at Treasury in um, cladding. And so the cladding people are probably breathing sighs of relief at the moment. They were probably a bit nervous because there was a rumour Jacob Rees-Mogg was going to head DLUHC, which would have... um, probably led led to total destruction of any possibility of government support in terms of planning reform and keeping uh, keeping that cost from being passed on to leaseholders. I think that will make them happier. But he has voted against, uh, for example, increasing civil penalties, which is a policy within the Fair Renting White Paper. I think that parts of the Fair Renting White Paper will go ahead. I think it's notable, for example, that the, the DLUHC just started their consultation on the decent home standard into the PRS. I could see them doing that. I can see them carrying on with the portal, but I certainly wouldn't be betting money that we're going to see the end of Section 21 just yet.
0: What a fantastic so second, way to finish the a- webinar! Might be a waste <laughs> of time
1: and you should <laughs> sign up immediately.
0: What a fantastic way to spend the last 43 minutes then on that basis. But I think that's <laughs> insightful. Um, um, <laughs> the knock-on effect, of course... The numbers the are dropping section, already. Yeah, they've gone. They've realised it's <laughs> a waste of time. Um, they're only here for the content. Um, so the knock-on effect of the end of Section 21 is indeed changed to Section 8. So if we can move on to the next slide, Sarah. Um, the um, One of the biggest um, sort of focalized issues the end of section one is this is this fear that i can no longer get my property back i want my property back now i need to have my property back now i can't do this anymore because section 21 disappears now that that isn't actually true is it and and there are devices and grounds put in the new reform whether it happens or not given your last statement this could again be completely pointless but let's cover hypothetically (laughs) it does get put into place um if a landlord wants their property back what can they do under the new reform
1: so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's um, it, 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 it's, it's, it, it's, it's not as simple as yeah, saying you can't get your property back because the government actually, obviously, and hardly a surprise really, has got to put in place specific measures to get, get properties back through Section 8. So they're doing two things. They're revising existing grounds of possession in some cases, to make them easier, so for example, uh, ground one and two, so ground one used where I want my property back for myself and my spouse, has traps in it, which like for example, you can't use it if you haven't told the tenant before the start of the tenancy you might rely on it. The government is proposing to, to get rid of those traps um, and to make some of those grounds they are proposing um a new ground for possession for persistent serious rent arrears. So tenants who drop into serious arrears more than three times in a, in a year um, can be evicted as a mandatory ground for possession. I said I don't so think that adds much. But
0: just on that, David, actually, no. this came up in, in the last webinar and I'm not sure we have any further clarity on this, but that three times in uh that three strikes in your out ruling basically. The way I read that was you, you need to be in arrears by two months or more, three times within that period. Yep. So let's hypothetically say in um, in January, I'm two months in arrears, but mm. I pay February. So by February, I'm still two months in arrears. Does that count as one? And then March will count as three? If I start to keep up with the rent, but don't back pay the two months previous.
1: No, you, you, I mean, it's talking about you clearing down from two months and going back up to two months.
0: So you would have, right. Okay. So there isn't a you running...
1: don't, If you're in two months arrears in January and you pay February, you're still two months in arrears.
0: Yeah. So, I mean,
1: the the, problem, one of the problems here we should bear in mind is that a number of people don't appreciate how Ground 8 actually works. So I should be very clear. Ground 8, if I serve a Section 8 notice citing Ground 8 just now um, and the tenant clears the arrears but drops back into arrears before the court hearing... Then ground date is still made out and they should still be evicted and they will be. So the first point to bear in mind is that people think that if I serve a section a notice site in eight notice citing ground date and the tenant clears some of the arrears, I can't then go to court and get possession. Absolutely, I can. Um, and 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 so there's some misunderstanding. What this is really aimed at is tenants who, over a more extended period, keep dropping over two months and then dropping back out and dropping in again. But the trouble is, of course. It's a bit nonsense because, as I've already said, if a tenant drops out out, out of um, two months arrears but drops back in before the court hearing, you're going to get possession under ground A anyway. There is also a discretionary ground possession called ground 11 for persistent late payment. And the vast majority of judges, if presented with a case where a tenant um, has been in serious rent arrears three times in a year, are likely to evict them anyway. So, so there's some doubt as to whether a new ground for possession for serious rent arrears is adding much. And actually, the original, prior to the White Paper, there were previous discussions. One of the previous proposals was actually to say that if a tenant got into two months' arrears, um, then ground eight would survive in court unless they were less than one month in arrears. So they would have to clear down more. that They couldn't just pay off 50 quid and just drop below two months they had to get it below one month of arrears, otherwise you were still entitled to possession, which I actually thought was a far more effective um, means of operation and actually dealt with the bigger problem um, from a landlord's perspective.
0: And, and in terms of arrears, there's certain changes to the notice periods, aren't there, from uh, two to four weeks, I think. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so they're talking about increasing some of the notice periods up to, up to a month. And I think also that uh, they're looking at more standardization because at the moment you've got uh, no notice for ground 14, two weeks notice for ground 8, 10, 11, 12, uh, one month's notice for ground 7A and 7B, and then two months notice for a, sw- a, a load of other grounds. So I think that they're, there's sort of trying to avoid having all these different notice periods and standardizing it down to to one simpler notice period. Um, and and- go on sir
0: sorry. sorry i was gonna say because i remember the original sort of mandate of the reform and it was to give landlords accelerated powers uh where there was clear breach right there the was a wording to that effect it might not be evaded but it's pretty much that 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 was the wording I yeah, see how this. That. no i mean i really <laughs> to see how see. this does that because even on the basis level of going from two to four i mean it's not there's no acceleration here at all um so uh, I, I think <laughs> just completely missed that point and, and not not really look to to deliver that or because this is this is dragging things out further in some respects. I mean
1: this is the difficulty though, isn't it? Is that the government wants to do this, but actually the existing grounds aren't that bad. The problem isn't really the grounds, it's the courts. Mm. Um and buggering around with notice periods by a few weeks here and there isn't going to fix the courts. So so what? Um and and the other other thing the government's put in as a sort of throwaway is they oh well we're going to make it easier to recover possession for antisocial behaviour but they haven't said how, and the reality is what they're going to do there is grounds possession under anti, for antisocial behaviour you're going to have to go to court and prove it, it they're currently discretionary grounds but if you prove antisocial behaviour in court judges don't say oh you've proven it but I don't fancy giving you possession because it's serious you move it to a mandatory ground it won't change that much because. You're still- going to have antisocial behavior um and and the difficulty in in fact in terms of proving antisocial behavior is proving the antisocial behavior because you can't get the neighbors to turn up in court Mm. so unless you change the basis of proof then then you don't change much And, and the difficulty of course is that you can't go too far in changing the basis of proof because otherwise people could just make accusations antisocial behavior left right and center to throw tenants out you've got to You've got you can't just you've got to have some evidence and you've got to prove that antisocial,
0: otherwise it's not fair. And and Mark Mark sort of backs his points up, good morning, Mark, saying he has a renter's uh claim um 14 months so far, and uh, we've yet to have a final hearing, um, which um is clearly a long, long time for a landlord to be sat um not yeah. receiving rent, um, no. and to no. be sat in a property that they're not paying for.
1: And I've got clients in the same position, and the problem is not is not so much the law there. The problem is that if you go to court and get a, hear- a first hearing and the judge isn't satisfied at the first hearing you get possession, you, you'll be waiting till, till your hair grows out um, until you get a second hearing. And, and you can wait. You, you, and I, I should imagine of his 14 months, probably about six of it at least, has been spent twiddling his thumbs waiting for a court date. Yeah, I, I've actually got cases at the moment, to give you an example of how ridiculous some things are, where possession orders have been given and I can't instruct the county court bailiff because the county court bailiff won't currently have instruction if you don't have the possession order typed up. And the courts are taking so long to type up genuine orders that have been given that you don't get them within the
0: 14-day period when the tenant should have left. So you can't instruct the county court bailiff because you don't have the possession. Order. In Mark's case, actually, it was a lack of judge, she says, for the last hearing. And um so... plenty of cases uh, cancelled recently
1: for lack of judicial time. So yeah, the yeah. problem here is, it, it, I mean, and this has always been the problem is that Section 8 is often blamed for being no good, but actually the blame is not Section 8. The law isn't that bad. The problem is the system that is meant to enforce the law, and the problem frequently is the court system.
0: And and every fibre of my being is now wanting to go on a monologue around why rent protection insurance is important and how we can help. Um, but I I hope that mere statement um, pushes people in the right direction if they're not looking to protect themselves. Because but, um, you
1: know, but, but you should bear in mind. I mean, this is this is a a, a good point that's worth throwing in. I mean, uh, the economics of rental protection insurance is 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 set for a major shakeup if the courts get slower. Then rental protection insurers inevitably are going to have to push their premiums up because they're going to have to wait longer and pay more money. Um, if Section Twenty One goes away, then rental protection insurers are going. To, it's going to cost them more money um, to obtain possession. And and I should also, to be fair to rental protection insurers, point out that, that that they also drive down the fees that are paid to solicitors. So the quality of legal work potentially is going to have to be improved. And rental protection insurers will have to pay out more to solicitors to get higher quality legal work. So there are challenges. You know, it's, it, it, the trouble with these kind of changes is it's not just about landlords and agents. No, there right. are challenges across all elements of, of, a, of quite a complex and developed sector. And, and the, you know, the economics of rental protection insurance, you know, I'm quite sure you guys are thinking about it, is,
0: is going to be radically different. The, the, there's a reason why i'm much grayer and look a bit old a lot older than i did only only two or three years ago david um you're preaching to no and indeed when it comes to that side of the market you know we've seen 100 percent increase in in premium frankly in in the last three years because of the effects of covid and the knock-on effects of distress in the courts you know things like this are, are, are only going to add more challenge and, and it's incredibly um, challenging of course because if a rental protection insurer puts their premium up
1: which they might feel they have no choice but to do more landlords will say well i don't want to pay that premium i'll run the risk but then the difficulty of too many landlords do that is then you don't have the premiums coming in. So you have to put premium up higher and it becomes a, a, a circle that leads to collapse of RPI. So you've got, a, a, it's a
0: very fine balance. I mean, that balance, I think, is quite a way off to be fair. And what we're seeing actually in the last few months is a consolidation of landlords' efforts to take rent protection. We're seeing more and more landlords than ever um, taking a, a level of a service, um, despite maybe, you know, increases in price versus, say, two or three years ago. So, um, but I, I take a point you to add that. you always purchase.
1: It's a... Uh, it's a good situation at the moment, from your perspective, and that people will buy insurance when they're in an uncertain climate.
0: But yeah, and it's balancing those two sides to make sure that it there's, there, there, there's you know there's, there's a comfy place for both parties, I suppose. But um, um, but but away from rent protection insurance again, this isn't really about good lord. I, I want to sort of finish on um, the, the the managing antisocial baby because you touched on it briefly there, saying actually there's a suggestion here that there should be a mechanism, but there's very little detail. Can you take us through exactly what's being suggested from an antisocial perspective? Uh-huh
1: well i mean practically nothing i mean this is the trouble is that what's being suggested is it will be more robust and they will ensure landlords get their properties back but the difficulty with this again is that is that the government has this very you know the, the of late the conservative government under Boris Johnson particularly and, and going forward has had a very messed up attitude to the courts and they think that that the executive can order the courts to do stuff and they it just can't i mean that's the whole point of a, of a three legs constitutional system is that the courts are independent. Mm-hmm. So there is no ability for the executive to turn around to the judiciary and say, we want you to give possession more in these cases. Yeah. That's not that's not on the cards. The only way they can do that is by changing the law, which they've got to get Parliament to do. But then you've got to write the law. <laughs> that's very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. It's it's. And you can't just write a piece of legislation that says, "Oh, well, if a tenant's accused of antisocial behaviour, they must be given then possession must be given." That's never going to work because you've then got to bear in mind that 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 you can't throw people out of their homes and, and disrupt their their right to private and family life without good reason. So you've got to, you've got to contend with all of these different competing problems. Uh, I think the real solution to antisocial behaviour, it seems to me, is actually much more to do with with how we manage it. Um, Local authorities are supposed to have a role in this. They've mostly, due to cuts, cut back on these services. Um, The Homelessness Reduction Act was supposed to require local authorities to set up more schemes to keep tenants in their homes. They've mostly not done it because they don't have the money. Um, So I think the difficulty is that there's there's a real management problem around antisocial behaviour. And landlords can only manage it so far. So I think one there's going to have to be a greater degree of sophistication and expertise brought into the way agents and landlords manage the behaviour. There's going to have to be a greater and, and more open discussion, a more honest discussion with tenants about what they can expect and what they can't expect. Um, I mean, a certain amount of antisocial behaviour leads to just totally messed up expectations, it's called about messed up expectations by tenants. Um, local authorities are going to have to be more effective in utilising their powers. Um, and then at the same time, the government can tweak the law. But the reality is, I'm not convinced that they can make such radical change as they're as they they're hinting at. If you read the fair renting white paper, it's all
0: hints and no mm. no material because because the reality is they know damn well can't do anything. It will be interesting to see where we land, and and of course, there's been a call for evidence um, that has um, not long ago closed. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what further detail comes out ahead of uh, any potential legislation, which indeed is potential, especially given your your notes around um, what you think may or may not happen given the new government and and personnel change. Um, we we are nearly pretty much out of time. I do want to cover a few questions as promised um, for some of the. I just I just ruined the whole question
1: thing by talking too much.
0: <laughs> No, no, it, it, that's exactly what you're here. Thank you so much. Um, I've got one in from K. Michael. Um, can agreements require tenants to provide and pay for rent guarantee insurance? Um, no, I would remind uh, you of the Tenant Fee Act June 2019. Um, that, that wouldn't be the case. Um, if you're a landlord or an agent looking to utilise that service, then please do reach out to us. We can talk to you how to do that uh, in a proper way without um, breaking any uh, existing legislation. Um, we've got a couple of questions around timeframe and... Yeah, that sounds quite a, quite a, quite a difficult question to answer in terms of when this would be delivered. Um, let's hypothetically say the change of government, Eddie Hughes' um, resignation, it doesn't make any effect, and this is going down uh, the courses which they that the, the, they wanted to. When would you expect this to come into play um, if everything was it was equal? I suppose.
1: Well, that's a difficult question. I mean, one the legislation has got to be drafted. Um, Timeframes have already been pushed on that because of the the upset in government. You can't see the legislation hitting Parliament now. Really, before spring next year, it'll probably take most of the year to pass through. So it might pass through towards the end of the year. The government is committed in the to the very renting rent white paper to giving not less than six months notice of it coming into effect, um, which already pushes you you know well into twenty twenty four. Do you note know, at this point there's an election coming up at that point, and that 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 then potentially upsets the timetable further um, and then the government has also said that uh, that, that um, while they might well make this applicable to existing tenancies, they'll give at least a year's notice of that occurring. So one thing I just wanted to quickly throw in I've, I keep hearing people saying they saying, "Oh, I'll evict all my tenants if the government does this. This would be a bonkers thing to do unless you're planning to sell." Because if you evict all your tenants and get new tenants, then the new tenants will be subject to the new regime. Um, whereas if you keep your old tenants, um, you will get more time in the old regime um, uh, before moving across the new regime. So evicting people because of this, unless you're planning to settle up and, and leave the sector, is is extraordinarily unwise. Don't do it.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, if you're viewing this as a business, um, the mechanisms that are available to you at the moment um, are, as said, and the new changes do bring in grounds, as we've touched on, for getting your property back in the event that you, you want to sell. Um, there's complexities behind that, and we need more detail. Um, if one of your family members are looking to move in, et cetera, somebody's noted in the chat that they have two properties, they are going to sell them, um, and they're going to retain them for the two children. If that works, that works. That's great. Um, but ultimately, I don't think there's any need for, for mass panic to sell up straight away and sit there with with with, with change of tenants or an empty properties for the sake of it um, but I think you've really covered a lot of the points here really well today David especially the points around the supply and demand issues that really are the overarching problems the court issues that sit behind any any change and getting some of the minutiae details been really helpful um, Thank you to everybody that's um, attended. Um, this is a recorded session. A few questions coming in, inter- whether this will be shared. We'll share this with all of the registrants. Uh, we had over 1,000 letting agents register uh, for the session today that we shared with all of you. Um, and as always, if we've not covered a question, if we've run out of time, if you've got further questions, please do feel uh, free to reach out to us directly at Good Lord. Uh, any personal questions uh, for David, we can pass on. Uh, but for today, that's it. David, thank you so much for your time. Um, and uh, thank you to everybody who joined us. And um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next instalment in the Renters Reform Bill series. Um, and I think the next one we're joined by Mr. Paul Champlina. Um, so look forward to that. So um, David, once again, thank you very much. And thanks again to our viewers. Thank you. Cheers. Now, bye bye.